Welcome to Spotlight. I'm Adam Lay, News Editor for Private Equity International. Over the past decade, private equity has consistently outperformed many public market indices, yet it has often come under fire for its fees and lack of transparency. Recently, a public commission in Pennsylvania recommended that the state's two largest pension funds move away from illiquid investments to more passive index-based public market strategies and that they could save as much as $10 billion over the next three decades. Professor Haludafik Falapu is author of the book Private Equity Laid Bare and has been one of the most outspoken critics of the private equity industry. I recently sat down with him at Oxford University's Said Business School, where he's a professor of financial economics. Discussing what he sees as the industry's greatest pitfalls, he began with what he referred to as one-sided compensation. The thing is that this carried interest, and it's been the same for the hedge funds, is, is basically you cannot lose. It's like if a fund does okay or well, then I earn quite a bit. But if a fund doesn't do well, then that's it. That's not my problem in a sense. So it's the head I win and tail you lose. And that's a bit of a strange compensation type of device. And what can happen as well is that if you have a broadly diversified portfolio of private equity fund managers, imagine that every year you have like half of them are above the hurdle and half of them are below then you end up giving 20% to whoever was above the hurdle and then you don't get anything back from the guys who are below. So you can very well be in a situation where on average you just got out of the hurdle or below. So on average you earn just like 5 or 6% in private equity, but you have ended up spending billions because a subset have done well and, and you have given them a lot of money and the guys who didn't do so well did not give you anything back. If it was symmetric compensation, so people take 20% of the upside and the deck, they give you back 20% on the downside, then this wouldn't happen. So if on average people would do eight, you would get eight. There wouldn't be a, and if you did six on average, you wouldn't pay carry on average because the people below will have compensated for the people above. So it's slightly simplifying, but that gives, I think, the core, the essence of, of the issue. Falapu says that private equity is known for aligning the interests of managers and investors, but the interests of general partners and their LPs aren't necessarily the same. He advocates a contract similar to those that GPs have with the management teams of their portfolio companies. And, and you can structure it one way or the other, but the underlying economic logic is this. What that creates uh, as a situation is that if a management doesn't beat the hurdle and the hurdle is the yield you get on the preferred equity, the management loses a large proportion of their personal wealth. And if the management goes over the preferred return of the equity, which is usually around 8, 10, 12, then the management will get a very large reward. But that comes at the cost that if, if they don't match the hurdle rate, they lose a large fraction of their personal wealth. That's the contract that is signed between the GP and the management. And if the management is the one losing a large part of their wealth, if they're not beating the hurdle, it is that they get a disproportionate compensation if they are beyond the hurdle. Falapu's model would essentially take the contract between the GP and its executives and extend it directly to the LP. The incentive alignments might appear to be the same, but he argues that this isn't really the case. And so at first sight, it sounds exactly like what a carried interest is. There is a preferred return, etc. But in fact, it is the core issue, which is that the carried interest smells like the kind of contract the, the GP signs with the executives, but in practice, it is not at all the same sorts of alignments. 
And that's quite paradoxical. If the contract that the GP signed with the LPs was the exact same one that the GP signs with the executives, in that case, then the carried interest wouldn't be a fee. And, and there is this debate with people saying, oh, the carried interest shouldn't be a fee. Well, it is a fee because of the way you have structured it. If you would have had the same contract as with the management, the carried interest indeed wouldn't be a fee. It would be a, a capital gain indeed, completely obviously. But the way you have structured it now makes it like a joke that you consider the carried interest as a capital gain because it is ex- everything but a capital gain. It's a fee, period, that you've earned. It's a bonus you've earned for generating a certain return. And you would have this sort of alignment that people are talking about, etc., with a large part of the manager's wealth at risk on the very junior part of the deal. So why aren't more LPs insisting on this model? problem in the industry is that even if the LPs, many LPs, and, and increasingly so, see these things, the incentive of everyone is to shut up because it is so complex and so subtle as an argument that the trustees, the ultimate guys to take decisions, do not understand them. And so if you as the LP, who you effectively in the private equity division of a pension fund, you would start shouting at the fact that the interests are not aligned and that there is a very big problem with this carried interest and so on, then you would just alert the, the, the trustees, you would, make, you would scare them and they would just terminate your division and so you, you would lose your job. At the end of the day, the evidence strongly suggests private markets have greatly outperformed public markets over various time periods. Fallopu argues, though, that commonly used public market indices like the S&P 500 and MSCI World leave an incomplete comparison with private equity. But in any case, past performance in the respective strategies may not be a good indicator for what lies ahead. So going forward, the issue is we all agree that returns gross expectations are lower. Given the level of valuations, we know that gross of fees, it would be almost impossible to generate a 20%. People think that if you already generate a 10 12% gross of fees, you will have done very well going forward. Now, if you simulate the current fee structure on a 12% gross of fees, you end up with 6% net. And now 6% net coming from buyout, if they manage to generate 12% gross, which will be quite something, 6% net will be pretty catastrophic. And when you will have charged, in that case, half in fees of the returns, right? So 6% would have gone in fees and 6% would have been given to investors. And I think it's going to be very tricky. So the issue is that it's very important to understand that the past is the past, but the future is what we don't know, and to be very careful about the analysis of future. The only thing we know about the future is that expected returns are going to be lower, and the other thing we know is that the fees that are going to be applied have been signed now, so we know the fee structure. And therefore, if you apply these fee structures that have been accepted now on lower expected return, it's going to be a catastrophe. People removing the hurdle rate and so on, that is creating tremendous problems for an environment where you have lower expected returns. If expected returns stay at 20%, it's not a big deal that people remove the hurdle rate or they move it from eight to six. But if the return expectations goes down and people start removing hurdle rates and these sorts of things, then this is starting to bite and to hurt. So that's the main issue. Yet, for whatever supposed flaws private equity has, Pensions, sovereign wealth funds, and institutional investors around the world are lining up to invest in the asset class, so much so that many funds are having to turn investors away or limit the amount that they can commit. Presumably, they wouldn't be doing so if they weren't seeing the returns to justify it. This is how Fallopu responds to that argument. It's pretty hard to to evaluate political returns. So the idea that an institutional investor would increase their allocation to political because they are very satisfied with the return they have just received 
it's pretty tricky because so much of the returns are unrealized. It's all net asset values. Even in someone like CalPERS, who has been investing in private equity for 30 years, if you would look at how much of the money CalPERS has invested, got back, and how much is still valued, self-valued by the funds, we are talking about probably numbers like 30 billion given. It was the case for Pennsylvania. 30 billion given, 30 billion given back, and then 15 billion that is the current valuation of unrealized things. Is that good? Is that bad? Pretty hard to tell. And a lot of investors have reviewed that in that situation. And somebody is younger in private equity, it's even less that has been given back and, and a lot of it that is self-valued by private equity. Now, the academic research that looks in valuation seems to find that the valuations are on average okay. So that on average, it's not going to be the, uh, the realized cash flows and not a lot lower than the valuations that are given. But there's still some uncertainty about that. So we don't know. We don't know what benchmark. We don't know like a lot of things. So it's not really that trivial for somebody to say, my returns so far in private equity have been very good. And even if somebody reaches that conclusion, again, going forward, one needs to be careful if you go into an asset class with high valuations and high fees, etc. And there are not that many investors who do analysis like, which funds did I turn down and which funds did I invest with? And do I have select abilities? Can I select the right funds? So everybody says, oh, I select only top quartile funds, but did you actually run the test on the ones you turned down versus one you took? And so it's very difficult in practice to, to really benchmark private equity. And, and the discussions in Pennsylvania were very clear on that. In 2018, Pennsylvania state officials asked Fallopu to look into how PSERS and SERS, the state's two biggest pension funds, could shore up about $70 billion in total debt. Fallopu tried to look into how much the pension funds had paid to private equity managers over the past decade, but says he faced numerous challenges such as non-disclosures of figures and conclusions based on advice from external consultants. So it's an interesting case study where you have two pension funds who have, as a trustees and also as a last resort rescuer, the treasury of the state. So basically, these funds are 50% funded, so they are likely not to have money to pay the pensions they have promised. And in that case, it's the treasury that will have to pay the difference. So you have a treasurer who's asking them, can I have some details about how much money you've paid to whom? What are the returns per asset class? Can I have like more information about all of that? And let's say that they were not very forthcoming and not very cooperative, etc. And there was all like this kind of games or nasty like relationship between these parties making it like very difficult to have like a clear view about what is going on, etc. And this is pretty strange. The treasurer is the one who will pay for any money missing. So why isn't there like a more collaborative setup? Why if private equity is so good why isn't it then easy for you to demonstrate that, to give all the data, to prove that you're doing well? Why is there so much resistance if it is that good? It's a bit like when people say, we help company grow and so on. Then explain to me why, again, today in the Financial Times, in Spain, everybody seems to be against private equity. Every employee is in a private equity firm that they went to is complaining about it. What, why is it the same in Germany? Why is it the same everywhere? Why is it the same in the Washington Post article the other day about several companies in the U.S.? held by private equity? Is it because the journalist is only choosing the people who have complaints? Or if, if not, is it because there is something more fundamentally wrong with the story you're giving? So what was interesting in that situation was the illustration of that. If it was so good, then why don't you give me the information? Right, Massive resistance to provide information. But in all fairness as well, a lot of information they hadn't collected themselves. But instead of saying, honestly, look, we've never collected fee information because 
we've always managed to get away with just giving you the official management fees we've paid. And that has understated by a factor of like five or 10, the actual amount we've paid to, to the funds. Instead of coming out like honestly uh, like this, people tend to pretend, no, no, it's, it's fine. This was really all we have paid. And carry is not really a fee and well, it's not a fee and so on. So people try to play game. It's a bit like, yeah, you try to put things under a carpet saying like, if I don't show anything and I don't say anything and I stick to my lies, then I will get away with it. It's like, yeah, maybe it has worked in some situations, but if you have on the other side, some people who know what they are talking about, you're a bit in trouble. And so that we lose a lot of time on these sorts of things. It would be a lot more helpful if everybody, if indeed they have nothing to hide, it would be a lot more efficient if everybody would, would just be open, transparent, share data, etc. If the practically is so good at improving companies, then let's create a database with all of the deals, with a sample selection of biases, etc. And let that be open to all the researchers. Don't tell me there is a secret recipe that I would learn about if I were just analyzing the accounting information of portfolio companies. There is no such things. Why is it that the limited partnership agreements are so confidential? What kind of like secret there is in there that, that like are trade secrets? There are no trade secrets in LPAs. What there is in LPAs is that if you read the document, it's an outrageous document. That's it. That's the reason why it, it is kept out of, of public eyes. He says that if the public were to see some of the contracts made between private equity funds and pensions, people would be shocked and upset. And in the long term, it's in managers' own interests to be transparent and keep the public good in mind when taking investors' capital. If you're a good GP, you should embrace transparency, being open, engaging. You should encourage your industry association to chase bad behavior instead of tr trying to protect it systematically. And that will be for your own good. You cannot have a sustainable industry if you hide things, if the public opinion is against you, etc. So you have to accept that there are things that are not working so well, some things that are not quite fair, etc. You have to accept that and then bring that change. Otherwise, you cannot have a sustainable industry. Now, if the industry is not very important, then we, it's not a problem, it's not sustainable. But I, I agree that practically has a role to play. And the problem is that if at one point people realize, once they know more, because they will at one point know more of the fees of the conflicts of interest, etc., that fund managers are facing, some of them resisting and some of them going for it. At one point, you have a danger that people say, my God, this thing is terrible. Nobody's allowed to touch private equity anymore. And then the industry is killed. Or you have people raising funds that are like long-term funds where it's just passive holdings of private assets, etc. And they crush you because they are the fair, transparent guys, etc. Just like passive investing has, has crushed active investing in listed equity and debt. So if you want to have a sustainable industry, you have to accept that in your own industry, you have a survival of the fittest, that you have creative destruction and that you need to promote it by having an association that delete by behavior and encourage good ones and it's fully transparent and LPs have a very big role to play and the, the trustees of the LPs as well again bearing in mind that within these organizations if you go to the you listen to the board of trustees at CalPERS and you hear the conversations about private equity it's pretty obvious very quickly that everybody except maybe one have a clue about private equity but really a clue like my students after three hours of lectures in private equity would know more than any one of them except maybe one so the trustees of pension funds have a big role to play here and have a lot to learn and assimilate but we need to help them also the industry needs to help them as well by having simpler contract and simpler process so that people can absorb what they are doing given his critical views on the private equity industry 
It's perhaps no surprise that Falapu doesn't tend to be the most popular man in the room when he goes to private equity conferences. It's not really fun to be the guy that most people try to avoid. I do have a lot of people who appreciate what I do and what I say, and they wouldn't probably say it publicly. So I do have a number of close friends in the industry and people who are supportive. But it is not nice. You prefer to be the guy that who's celebrated by your peers or all the people in the industry you're studying. The other thing that makes life much more complicated so if I teach and I need the guest speakers and things like that people are much more keener to go and help a teacher who has a different image than, than mine so it makes my teaching more difficult the students also would prefer somebody who tells them the nice war stories about how great the industry is and that he has the industry in his pocket so that the student can easily find a job etc so also the students find it more difficult to have somebody who's challenging their prior uh, even though I think that from an education perspective, that's exactly what you want to do. I don't care what people think at, at the end of the course, but I want to have challenge our priors and to have force them to think deeply about something. Uh, and most of my students do go to private equity. So after my course, I even get usually more students going to private equity than thought they would. So I have a number of students who came to the course not thinking they would work in private equity. And after the course, they want a job in private equity. So I don't think I'm discouraging people or I'm anti-industry. I think I'm forcing them to think deeper about things like these return numbers that everybody accepts question that a lot more and you will see very quickly that there's a lot of questions you can raise against uh, around that number at the end of the day it's about what you expect the future to have in store and that you know is your it's an opinion and so then i, I have nothing to say about it so it it makes that more difficult it also financially i think we should not avoid the questions of conflicts of interest among academics and things like that you can earn a lot of money by speaking at conferences and you will get invited a lot more if you perceive as a friend and as an enemy that was Professor Ludovic Falapu of Oxford University's Said Business School. If you want to hear more episodes of the Spotlight podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and across PEI Media's various titles online. With Private Equity International, I'm Adam Lay. Thanks for listening. <laughs>